Amen. You may be seated. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Haste, hasten to bring him laud. Those are not words that are common to our modern vernacular, but essentially the hymn is calling all people everywhere as quickly as you possibly can. Praise and worship the name of Christ who has come, who dwells among us, Emmanuel. And the reason being, he has saved us from our sins. He has restored humanity, and he has brought us together in true friendship. In Acts chapter 2, we're getting a taste of what that looks like. Now that the gospel has come and now that people have been ransomed and redeemed and reconciled, they've been set free from their sins and they've been brought together. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, if you'll read with me, we will just read it one more time and then uh, we'll pray and ask God to help us by his spirit and then we'll get to work. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. Verse 46 is the focus for us this morning. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's bow and pray. Father, thank you so much. We see here in the early church a glimpse of heaven on earth. However imperfect however much there is that is still lacking, that is still wanting from not being able to see your son face to face, we nevertheless get to see that the gospel is real, that it is manifested here in the life of the church. It is manifested here at the life of First Baptist Church. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that when we turn to you, the glory and the sweetness of that which surpasses everything touches our hearts and transforms our lives, but you don't let it stop there, even though that in itself is everything we'd ever need. But you do more. You bring us together to each other as we draw together towards you. Father, I pray that as we enter into this Christmas season, this season of merrymaking, of feasting and eating of turkey and stuffing and all all the trimmings that go with it, Lord, as we enter into this season of gift giving, I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to the incredible blessing, the gift we have first in you and through you, the gift that we have in the fellowship we share, the gift we have in each other. And as we look at this text this morning, Lord, I pray that as this text says, we would be of a single heart and a single mind as we strive forward to be like your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Samuel Coleridge, famous poet, wrote a poem entitled Youth and Age in which he lamented the fact that he was getting older and that his life was coming to an end. And it's quite a beautiful poem. I want to just read to you a a short portion of it. He says, when I was young, when I was young, ah, 
woeful when. Ah, for the change twixt now and then. This breathing house not built with human hands, this body that does me grievous wrong, or airy cliffs and glittering sands, how lightly then it flashed along like those trim skiffs unknown of yore on winding lakes and rivers wide that ask no aid of any sail or oar, that fear no spite of wind or tide, not cared this body for wind or weather when youth and I lived together. And now here's where he turns, reflecting on his age. Flowers are lovely. Love is flower-like. But friendship? Friendship is a sheltering tree of friendship's love and liberty before I was old. That's such a wonderful line. Friendship is a sheltering tree. He's going to go on to describe the difficulties of his age and how the years have slowly slipped away and how all the youth and vigor and how all the vitality has gone from his hand, but he still has his friends. The poem is actually quite tragic as it winds its way through because he recognizes at the end of his life as he's approaching death, even those friends will be taken from him or he will be taken from them. One writer put it this way, friendship is the pursuit of at least six individuals who will carry your casket. They got the joke. You guys are a bit somber in here this morning. Friendship. I'm going to try one more time, Dr. Dr. Marlowe. Friendship is the pursuit of at least six individuals who will carry your casket. Yeah, 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 I hear you. <laughs> What's interesting is that we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 2, and we find something truly profound has taken place. Friendship has been redeemed. It has been redeemed primarily in the practice of fellowship. And what's absolutely fascinating is they've been told that they have crucified the Messiah, the Son of God, and they pose the question, what should we do? The, the full weight of what they have been a part of, the full weight of what all of us have, have been a part of, is pressed upon them. Peter calls for repentance and baptism, and when they follow through on that, not only do they receive the restoration, the reconciliation that they need with God the Father, but something else takes place, something just as beautiful, not as beautiful as being one with Christ, but something that reflects that oneness through the oneness that we have when through Christ we become one with each other. Luke begins to describe it for us here in Acts chapter 2, 42. He says they devoted themselves, and we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, notice this, they were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were looking out for each other. They were taking care of each other. And the word that is going to recur to us in this passage over and over and over again is that they were together. They were together. They were together. They were together. The effects of the curse are slowly being reversed. Rather than every individual 
individual looking out for me, myself, and I, number one right here, now we recognize that there is a God in heaven who has sent his son. He is looking out for us, and because he is looking out for us, that frees us as we worship him to be concerned about those around us. For the first time, we can love, and we can love generously, and we can love sacrificially, and we can love without regard for ourselves. We can just give ourselves for the others around us because Christ has given himself for us. What he has done on the cross not only cancels the record against us, but it shows us an entirely new way of living, which brings us to this next passage. And I want you to watch carefully what's going on here. It begins in verse 46. It's going to be a repetition of what we've already seen. So we know there's a slight shift in the day, in the train of thought here. Luke is reiterating literarily a device that he wants to show you this is starting a slightly new thought. Now, within the ESV translation, it's going to be the same paragraph. And indeed, you know, realistically, it's repeating some of the same ideas. But there's an interesting structure taking place here. In verse 46, he says, day by day, attending the temple together. Now, we already had heard that. They had already said that. But, Paul, but Luke is bringing chapter 2 to a neat little close. And it's actually, this is his concluding statement, which is going to reiterate some things, but going to show us something as well. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And he's already said that as well. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Now, as we look at this last statement, The main verb, the main sentence, the thing that is to catch our attention, you might not notice it. When we look here at this last concluding paragraph, you might say, okay, they were going to the temple every day. So that's the point. Every day we got to go to church. That's not exactly what Luke is saying. They were doing this in the early church. They were going day by day to the temple. They were having daily devotions together. There's no denying that. It says they were breaking bread in their homes. Okay, so that's the thing. That's the thing we should be getting together and sharing meals in our homes with each other. And absolutely, that's a good thing to do. They did it in the early church. We ought to do that ourselves. Absolutely. But actually, the main verb, the main sentence here that I want you to catch comes next. It says, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, as the ESV translates it. He goes on. Praising God, well, they've been going to the temple day by day, so it's a little bit of a repetition. It's a slight difference. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And, of course, he goes on to say that God was adding to their number day by day. But the main sentence in that whole paragraph, the main verb, is that they took their food, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, you're looking at that and you're thinking, huh, The way that Luke concludes chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the salvation of thousands upon thousands of people. I mean, Peter's standing up and preaching a barnstormer at Pentecost. And people are being convicted and they're getting baptized. 3,000 or so are baptized that day. You know their arms are tired. They're dunking people left and right. I mean, that is quite... I don't know what you're doing over there, but uh, I'm not trying to be funny. Anyway, um, I apologize. Uh, I'm trying to make a serious point here. But um, at any rate, they were dunking people left and right. And at the end of all of that, the conclusion is they were together and they were taking their food with gladness and joy. 
Now, that is kind of an interesting way to conclude this chapter 2, after all of the momentous events that have taken place. What could possibly Luke mean? Why is this the end of it for him? I want you to think about food for a second. We're entering into a holiday season in which we are going to make tons of turkey and ham and all the, all the mashed potatoes and all the trimmings and all the fixings that go along with it. And we're going to get together in each other's homes. We're going to get together with family, and we're going to come right around Christmas time, and we're going to eat more food than we can possibly, than what we possibly should eat, and we're going to make room for it, and then we're going to have leftovers that night, and it's going to be wonderful and delicious, and we're going to go to bed happy. We live in a country where it doesn't matter who you are, You can get food at any one of a number of different locations. You can get food at the Food Bank, New Life Mission. There are a number of agencies and organizations around town that will help you, that will support you. Churches, indeed, hamper baskets, the whole bit. You can be provided for. We got Superstore. We got Walmart. There are grocery stores, Save-Ons, everywhere we go. This is something that we need to be attentive to as we look at this text. In the first century, food is developed through an agrarian economy. They got to raise crops, and they got to raise animals. They are heavily taxed. They're under duress. The Roman Empire is constantly raising taxes. They have to pay off their Roman overlords. Money is scarce. These are people that are not, by any stretch of the imagination, well off. Food for them, vastly unlike food for us, is an uncertain proposition. Food for them is a fight for daily survival. And you and I have jobs, and we're going to come to the end of our year, and we're going to get Christmas bonuses, a great many of us. And we're assured of a contract or an employment offer that's going to last us into next year. And while we all recognize that there's a possibility that we could be laid off, that we could sustain a horrific injury that would prevent us from working, we're all reasonably assured of the fact that we will have a way to provide for our families throughout next year and years to come. Granted, some tragedy might happen. The mentality here in the first century is different. It's opposite. They can count on at least a couple of times a week not getting enough to eat. They can count on at least a couple of times a month maybe having to skip a meal. Crop failure, animal disease, these are real things. And so when it says that they came together and they ate their food with gladness and with joy, you need to understand something profound has taken place here. They are approaching the meal slightly differently. No longer do they approach their daily food with the perspective, I got to get something together. I got to cook a meal. I got to bring it together. I got to make this thing happen or else I'm going to die. They're not approaching it from a glass half empty perspective. The text tells us that because of what Christ has done for them, they're approaching the meal not even from a glass half full perspective. Don't think that either. They're approaching the meal with a view, not even looking at the food, but with a view that is looking at Jesus and each other, regardless of what's on the table. That's how Luke concludes Acts chapter 2. You say, okay, pastor, this is not what I was expecting. This is important for us, especially because of the time of year that we're entering into. How are we going to approach our 
Christmas dinner? How are we going to approach our every dinner? The way that we need to approach our dinner as we're looking at this text is to understand that the food that we are given is always given to us by a God who loves us and who desires to take care of us and who has promised he will meet our every need in his perfect timing. And that means as we approach the meal, having confidence in Christ's provision, we need to see what he intends for us to accomplish through the meal and what we, see, what, what we see the church trying to accomplish through their meals is growing closer in fellowship, growing closer in oneness, and growing closer through it to Jesus Christ, which is why the title of the message this morning is The Spiritual Discipline of Potlucking. Look closely at what is happening here. Verse 46 Day by day, that is to say every day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So he introduces it. He sets it up that way. It says they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. There's the main verb. That sentence, that, that participle phrase that precedes it, this is what we, con- what we call a conditional clause. In other words, the conditions in which they received their food were necessary for them to take their food this way. So they were receiving food with Gladness, they were receiving their food, as it says in the ESV, with generous hearts. We're going to talk about that word in just a second. But the ability to take their food in that way could only happen if certain conditions were met. You will only parachute out of an airplane if that airplane is flying at five to 10,000 feet. You can jump out of it while it's on the tarmac, And you can even pull your little parachute lever, but what you're doing is not parachuting, okay? You can go scuba diving in your bathtub, but any experienced scuba diver will tell you that you're not really scuba diving in your bathtub. The conditions are not right for the event to take place. And this condition, which is necessary for true potlucking, is as follows. Day by day, that is, they had a daily commitment. They were going to the temple. Look at this. And look at this word. They were going to the temple together. Together. It's a word that's been repeated multiple times through this last section of Luke. It's a word that Luke intends for us to see. What this word means together, and he's going to say they were going to the temple together and they were breaking bread together. He's not trying to say that what we should be doing every single day of our lives is going to church every single day, Monday to Sunday, and then going into each other's homes every single day, Monday to Sunday, and eating food. But the point of this condition is that there was a concerted effort for them to be together, to be on the same page, which means whatever we're about to say about potlucking or fellowship, we do not establish that activity. We do not engage in that activity if we do so with any kind of a mindset that says, I'm an individual. I'm just here for today. I'm just here for the meal. I'm just here for the Christmas banquet. No, we're not just here for the food or the auctioning. We're not just here to see pastor for the sixth year in a row get outbid on something. We are here to be together. I should have preached this sermon last Sunday. (laughs) And I had every intention of doing so, but circumstances dictated otherwise. The goal is to be together. 
The goal is to be one. You see, this word is an interesting word. It's used by Luke a great many times throughout the book of Acts, which means we have a number of scriptural references that help us to understand what he means when he uses this word. It's translated here in Luke chapter 2 as together. But let me give you a couple of other places where Luke uses this word. He uses it in Acts chapter 8 and verse 6 when, uh, when Philip was, um, was being listened to. And it says that the crowds, notice this, with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he was doing. They paid attention with one accord. It's translated there in the ESV as one accord. It means that everybody that was listening to Philip, they came together and they shared this experience together. They listened intently with one purpose. They wanted to hear what Philip had to say. And in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. The church got together and they were trying to decide on whether or not circumcision was going to be a necessary part of salvation and they were debating the theology of all of these sorts of things. And it says at the tail end of of Acts chapter 15, they write a letter to the church in Antioch addressing this issue of of circumcision and they say it has seemed good to us, the church here at Jerusalem, having come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Those are instances in which we see a positive coming together, a positive sharing of one idea coming together, being one for a good purpose. But Luke also uses it in negative ways too. Elsewhere in the scriptures, when they killed Stephen, the first martyr, Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 7 that they cried out with a loud voice They stopped their ears from listening and they rushed together at him to stone him. That word together, same Greek word. Some places it's translated one accord. Some places it's translated together. But the idea is that they were doing this thing as one. Acts chapter 19. Ephesus. Artemis the Great, they're, they're criticizing Paul because he's coming and he's preaching Jesus and he's uh, saying that everybody should throw away their statues and their idols and should worship Christ. And of course, the silversmiths in the city, they don't like that. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 19, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together as one, the whole city, into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. And if you're familiar with the account, they chanted for hours, great as Artemis, great as Artemis. They were not pleased with the Jesus that Paul was preaching. That's a negative experience. That's a negative example. But they were of one mind and had one accord in doing it. And last but not least, in Acts chapter 18, the Jews, when it comes to attempting to kill Paul, it says the Jews made a united, that word united, a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. The idea here is that we're going to engage in some action or some activity. And despite whatever differences we may have, Despite whatever things there are that separate us, whether socioeconomic, whether political, the idea here is that we have something that does, in fact, unite us. The early church was united together 
by the apostles' preaching, by the truth of what Jesus had done, by the reality that they could be called sons and daughters of the Most High. That unity, that coming together, that sharing of that one accord creates the condition in which it says they could receive their food. And they're not taking food as a means of sustenance now. They're not taking their food as a means of getting through to the next day, taking care of the basic necessities of life. No, no, no. The scripture says, together breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with, number one, glad hearts, and number two, generous. The ESV is going to translate it generous. Let's take a look at these two things. If food is compared to Jesus. And if Jesus has been given the most precious thing in all the universe in order to save us from our sins, then food is a very small gift in comparison. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, how will he who did not spare his own son, now, together with him, not give us all things. He goes on to say, who could possibly stand against us if Christ is for us? So hunger, thirst, these are real things. And yet we understand that if God was willing to send his son to deal with the impossible task of our sin. Food is nothing. Knowing that, they receive their food with gladness or exaltation. They were worshiping. They were praising God. This is just another instance of God meeting our needs. And they were together sharing their food with each other delighting to be together and to meeting each other's needs. And this is the perfect season for you to hear this message because I'm going to illustrate it this way. This last week, I was up at the mall doing a little bit of Christmas shopping for my family with a friend. And as we were walking along, I said to my friend, I said, hey, look, there's Blend's Coffee. And years ago, they had served apple cider there, and I liked it. And I hadn't been in a couple of years, so I said, let's pull into Blend's Coffee and let's get an apple cider. And of course, uh, my friend was like, oh, that's great, that's wonderful. You can get yourself an apple cider, I don't want anything. And I said, oh, okay, I'm going to get you something anyway. And uh, she was like, no, 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 you don't have to do that. And I said, no, 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 I really want to do that. She said, no, 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 no. I said, yes, let's just get a cup of coffee, let's just do this, you know. And we kind of argued back and forth. And uh, I realized I do it too. A number of you have taken me out for coffee. Hey, let me get you a cup of coffee. I'm like, no, that's okay. I can get my own coffee. But you've offered to buy someone coffee, and you've also had people offer to buy you coffee. So think about it now. Think about it with me. Why did you offer to buy someone a cup of coffee? Because you enjoyed them. It's not rocket science. Some of you are scratching your head like, yeah, why did I offer to buy that guy coffee? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you had second thoughts about it afterwards. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the initial idea to buy someone a cup of coffee, okay? 
You thought to yourself, I want to spend time with this person. I want to sit down and talk. I want to chat. I like this person. This person's company makes me happy. Let's chat. Let's talk. For you, it wasn't about like, oh, can I afford the, you know, $17.25 to get a small coffee from Starbucks? You know, it wasn't like that. It was, you know what? I want to meet with this person and visit with them. And the joy and the love of that friendship was so sweet and so good, hopefully, that you had no thoughts about the coffee. You wanted to bless them. You didn't even have to think about it the way I just walked you through it. You just did it. But now, think about this. Your friend is walking along with you. And they offer to buy you a cup of coffee. What's your knee-jerk reaction? No, thanks. I can get my own coffee, thank you very much. And I don't want any because I can't afford $17.25 at Starbucks. It is expensive. (laughs) Now listen, listen. You rejected the gift, and I love you, but hear me carefully here. Because what was important to you was your pride in being able to take care of yourself, being able to pay for your own cup of coffee. Your friend wanted to see you smile. Your friend wanted to visit with you. But what was more important to you was you in your pride showing your friend that you didn't need that and you could buy your own cup of coffee. Christmas comes. Jesus comes to destroy all of that so that we don't even look at the cup, whether it's half full or half empty, but that we would graciously and freely exchange in giving and receiving without a second thought for how it might make us look because Christ has already dressed us in his righteousness and has already graciously provided for our every need so that we can rejoice in him and each other. The condition for this to take place is that we have to, day by day, attending to the apostles' preaching, attending to the word of God, have to have it as our mindset here at First Baptist Church that we will be together, that we will come to one accord so that fellowship, things like meals and potlucking, these are not opportunities for us to show each other that we are capable of taking care of ourselves. That's antithetical to the Christian life. None of us is entering into heaven because we were able to take care of our sin issue. We all go in at the foot of the cross, which means that the sweetest place of fellowship is not in a position of pride where we say, look at me, I can take care of myself, I can buy my own cup of coffee, I can get my own Christmas gift, but where we say thank you and we smile and the trading that goes on is not the trading of cups of coffee, but in the laughter and the joy and the restoration of true fellowship which Christ died to give us. 
They received it with gladness. They received it in exaltation. When they took their food, it was not an opportunity for them to say, Oh, I'm really happy that you're able to be here in my home, and I just want you to all know that this grocery bill cost me so much money. That's not what it was about. And for those who were sitting down to dinner, it wasn't about, man, I know I'm eating a really nice meal in this guy's house, and I'm going to have to invite him over to my house next week and pay him back. That wasn't even on the agenda. What was there was, we're going to be with each other, and we're going to come to oneness. Now, this next word, this is where it becomes sharp. So far, so good. You're hearing me and you're saying, this sounds really good. I want to go. I want to buy a cup of coffee. Some of you are like, I want to go. And some of you are going to buy me a cup of coffee. Whatever your mentality is, this next word is really important. It's translated here by the ESV. They receive their food with gladness, and the ESV translates it generous hearts. If you have the King James Version, it's going to be translated singleness of heart. This is a hard word to understand because it's only used once in the entire New Testament, and it's used right here. As we look at this word, we don't really have a lot of biblical context in which to pick it apart. We're going to have to look at extra biblical sources, how it's used in, in literature, Greek literature from that period outside of the Bible in order to understand it. And the reality is, and I really had to step back and kind of scratch my head as I looked at the ESV translation here. The reality, this word literally means without a stone, level. Such a weird word, and, and it's used in a number of different ways by different ancient Greek writers to indicate that something was simple, that it was plain. In other words, there was nothing complicated about it. There weren't moving parts to it. There wasn't a portion of the ground that was higher and another portion of the ground that was lower. It's level. There's no stones. There's no pebbles. It's just a simple, plain thing. And most of the philosophers would use this word in philosophical writings to talk about the fact that individuals had a single heart. But it could also be used to indicate that they were giving of that heart to each other, that they had nothing to hide that there was nothing complex. You see, when sin comes into the picture, we want to cover that sin over, and so we start to invent stories, and we start to come up with guises and disguises and techniques. We start to engage in hypocrisy. And what Luke is telling us here when he uses this word is that when the church received Christ, they came together to be one, to have one accord, and when they did that, they were able to then receive their food in true happiness and without pretense, without wearing masks. They were able not only to give and take in food with each other, but as Luke concludes it here, this, this word translated generous, they were able to share their lives with each other. They were able to come together and truly be one. Now, food is an important component in the New Testament. I wonder how many times you've ever, ever really stopped to go through it and figure out all the different times that something is happening over a meal. I won't walk you through it. We don't have the time for it. But suffice it to say, when I tell you there's a spiritual discipline called potlucking, I can make a real argument from the Word of God for it. I'll tell you about two in particular. Jesus is going to have dinner at Mary and Martha's house. And of course, Mary is sitting down at Jesus' feet as Jesus is talking and listening to his teaching and just soaking it up. And Martha, 
who is so preoccupied with the meal to make sure that everything is served just so, just right. She's rushing around, and she sees that her sister isn't helping her, and she gets really frustrated. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 10 that Martha came to Jesus and said, Jesus, why don't you rebuke Mary and tell her to get to work in the kitchen with me? And Jesus took that moment to say to Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will never be taken away from her. The food is here today and gone tomorrow. You'll have to eat another meal tomorrow. Mary wanted to sit and talk with Jesus. A conversation, a dialogue, which she would have forever as she has Christ forever as King and Savior. Jesus' teaching over food again reminds us that food We're always going to need it. It's here, it's gone, it's fleeting. But it's a servant to something greater. And that greater is that we would be together. And now I'm going to give you a negative illustration. The gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. The church is struggling with how to understand the rules and the rituals of the Mosaic law and how those rules and rituals are to be applied to Gentiles. Do the Gentiles have to live like Jews? Do they have to do all the stuff that the Jews do? And Paul is ministering and serving in a church in Antioch. And Peter comes to Antioch. And they're visiting there together and having sweet fellowship. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes this. When Cephas, or Peter came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face. In other words, I, you know, I threw it in his face. Like, here's the problem. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What Paul says is happening is we were all together. We were having a wonderful meal. It was delightful. It was a good time of fellowshipping and potlucking, and we were together, Jews and Gentiles. The meal was being used exactly as the Lord wanted it to be used. And then these guys from Jerusalem showed up, these guys from James, and Peter, one of the leading apostles in the church, he acted hypocritically. He was together with us, But when they came, they went and they did their own thing. And so, Paul says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how? Can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The point being, you are wrong to break fellowship. You are wrong to skip the meal the way that you're doing it. At church, we come together around food. It's delicious. 
we sat together last night to a wonderful dinner. We had fun. We worshiped. Beautiful music was played. We supported a cause, the cause of the gospel. We ate food, but we were friends. We ate food, but we fellowshiped. There was food there, but the real purpose of last night was that we would be together, that we would have one accord with each other in Christ. And as we come to the end of the message this morning, that's the desire that is still here. That is the call of the gospel still. That wherever you are, as you enter into the Christmas season, many of us have lost loved ones. It's a time in which we feel lonely. Friends have gone. Family has gone. For many people, the holidays are a struggle because they see everyone with their families. You have a family in Christ. And as we enter into the holidays, to eat food, to celebrate, understand that these are just tools that God has given us in order to bring us together. My prayer for you is that you would pursue togetherness this Christmas. That is the reason why Christ came. That is why he died. Let us pray. Father, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would indeed bring us together. We understand that food is an opportunity to rejoice, to be glad, and to, to be of one mind, Lord, and to give ourselves without hypocrisy and pretense to each other. Lord, that is so easy to say and so difficult to do at times, but it will not happen if we cannot find ways just to sit down together over a meal. And so, Father, our prayer this morning, as this time of worship comes to a conclusion, oh, Lord, we pray that you bless this meal and every meal to follow to the purposes for which you truly intended. We know that we have to lean on you for the basic necessities of life, but we recognize that this is a gift that you have given for us to pursue a greater goal. And so, Lord, at every meal, at all times, let us pursue you with each other together in Christ. We pray. Amen.